0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today?
1: You're not interested in art? No. Now,
0: look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar.
0: Is she prepared to fall in love? No. Were you? Mm. No. Nobody is. Right. Um, You're never going to do it all right, but you can give her
1: confidence. Yeah. One of the highlights of my 2018 Ethan Hawke in the studio for a conversation about, yes, parenting, raising kids, falling in love, all straight out of a Richard Linklater film. We also talked about Blaze, Hawke's very good film about the Texas singer songwriter Blaze Foley. Also on this week's show, another one of my favorite 2018 experiences my interview with comic and first time filmmaker Bo Burnham, writer and director of eighth grade. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Josh and I are off this week as we prepare for our big live show, the 2018 rap party that's taking place Friday, January 11th at the Logan Center for the Arts on the campus of the University of Chicago. We're going to share our favorite movie moments of the year. Michael Phillips from the Tribune will be there, Tasha Robinson from The Verge and the Next Picture Show podcast, and Angelica Bastien from Vulture. If you haven't bought your tickets yet, you still can. W wbez.org events or filmspotting.net events. In the meantime, we've got a couple of great conversations I was lucky to have in 2018. In fact, two of my favorite interviews ever in over 13 years of doing this show, Ethan Hawke, and Bo Burnham. Hawk was in town to talk about Blaze, his film about the late Texas singer-songwriter Blaze Foley. Burnham, a stand-up comic and former YouTube star, he's the writer-director of Eighth Grade. We did a lot of talking about their films, both of which are great, but what made the conversation special was that Hawk and Burnham ended up reflecting on so much more. We're going to start with Hawk, and we did cover so much ground, we didn't even get to First Reformed, one of the best films of 2018 and one of the best performances of 2018 there with Hawk in the lead his film though that he directed and co-wrote is Blaze and Blaze Foley is played by real life singer-songwriter Ben Dickey making his screen debut. Foley has been a bit of a legend since his death at 39 back in 1989 he was perennially homeless his clothes and shoes famously kept together with a duct tape but as a songwriter he was deeply respected by contemporaries like the better known Texas music legends Lucinda Williams, Lyle Lovett and Towns Van Zandt who's played wonderfully in the film by musicians. And Charlie Sexton. Foley's songs have gone on to be recorded by Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard, John Prine, and others. Here's my conversation with Hawk, starting with a bit of the trailer for Blaze. Only one drink, big dog. I don't want any shenanigans from you tonight. Don't make me regret it.
2: Oh, Lord. Okey-dokey, Sponky-Pokey. This next song is my wedding song.
0: I don't know who Blaze Foley is. It's actually, it's, it's Blaze Foley.
2: You really should know who Blaze was. Didn't try to fall in love with you. <laughs> do you think we're born knowing how to
0: love? Why do we forget? To keep myself
1: from falling. Plain old living I man. I've done so many times. you gonna be a big country
0: star? I saw
1: daylight in you. I don't wanna
2: be a star. I want to be a legend. I'm going
1: down to... I'm going to open with kind of a long-winded one, so bear with me here a little bit. I like but it already. Watching your movie, I am immediately thinking about the biopic as a genre, conventional ones anyway, which I would say your film is certainly not a conventional one. And often, they're concerned to me. They seem concerned with psychology, trying to explain behavior of these characters rather than maybe trying to just observe behavior. But the other one that really hit me watching Blaze, and it's something I never really considered before, is that biopics on some level are excuses to enact or reenact these kind of signpost moments from characters lives that we as viewers have some attachment to they're kind of part of the the cultural consciousness so we care about what's happening and maybe we only care about what's happening because we have that attachment to it biopics then can be a little bit lazy but when you're making a movie like you did where the subject is someone who's not part of that collective consciousness we have to be invested the same way we would be with a fictional character so My question is, how deliberately did you consider those things? How deliberately did you set out to not make a conventional biopic?
0: Well, I think in the DNA, as soon as you say you want to make a biopic about Blaze Foley, you're shifting the paradigm a little bit. Because almost every musical biopic that's ever been made is about somebody who's famous. Yeah. Who, who made it. And the subconscious, the subtext of that is that your story is worth telling because you're famous. And when I was working on this Chet Baker biopic, I was interviewing guys who played with Chet and really realizing they would say that, you know, to really know Chet, you really had to play music with him. I mean, that was where his best self was manifest. And I, a couple things happened to me, which was that, wow, First of all, I want to make a movie about these guys, the guys who played with Chet, rather than Chet himself. Because the story of celebrity and drug addiction and, you know, the ups and downs of fame, it's just a well-worn road. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wouldn't it be awesome to see a biopic where the scene where they, you know, we all know the narrative, right? He struggles, something bad happens, these draws a great... Uh, well of creativity from this pain Mm -hmm. he gets discovered he rises to the top now he loses what's important to him he falls from grace finds self and movie right and that's a really boring narrative and it flies in the face of I've spent my life with artists musicians and most of them are met with just complete and utter indifference That's not the story of their life at Mm -hmm. all. Their story is that of practicing constantly, trying really hard, having some minor little ups and basically, you know, being ignored. That's most people's experience in the arts. And I just thought Blaise Foley somehow I was like, wow, he's the perfect, you know, vehicle To tell a a more true biopic. one Because like you said, I find them often extremely lazy because they have a great central performance because there's this very interesting human being at the center of which we already know a lot about. So a lot of the work of the actor has already been done. They All they have to do is imitate this other person. They don't have to do any discovery. And part of what I wanted from Ben Dickey was I cast uh, a real musician, a guy who has cried real salty tears over the way his dreams have been treated by the music industry. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. and he has something to say about that. He's not going to, it's not, you are not going to watch some reheated meal. You know, this is, he has something to offer you about his love of music and his love of blaze. And he's lived this, this life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want him to impersonate blaze. And the great thing about when blaze isn't famous, nobody would know anyway, even if you did, you, you, you have to make, I want you to put your blood into the movie. Use Blaze's music. Blaze gave us his music. That's where he lives. That's where the... We'll be true to the man by honoring the music. Yeah. Now let's honor the spirit of what's vital about an artist's life when they... Where their dreams don't come true.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about how you settled on kind of the framing device, and that makes it sound a little more mechanical than it is in this film. There's nothing mechanical about it, but honoring the music. The music is really not just the soundtrack, it's what holds the entire narrative yes, together. It's holds it all together. I, I call it a country western opera, you know, which is, you know, a good musical, it-, it-,
0: it tells the story of the characters through song. So I studied Blaze's music and figured, like, what's the character inside this song? How could this song. Uh, speak for the movie. And, and I had this idea that when people die, there's this kind of fight over the narrative. You know, I've seen it happen over, what's the story? Mm -hmm. And the wife tells one story and the best friend tells another story. And the person who worked with them tells another story. And often they don't match, you know, that they don't describe the same Mm -hmm. human being. And, and I, I think a lot about this, about past, present, and future. And that was my idea. What if I made a movie where there really isn't one narrative? It's this braid of the three of them. There's the past, there's the present, and the future, and they're always touching and affecting each other. And what if I could tell Blaze's life posthumously, the way people fight over the narrative after they're gone, the way the narrative is being created in the moment, and the way that, you know, the... The female point of view, his lover's point Mm -hmm. of view, his point of
1: view, how they're all dancing off of each other. And I kind of just, that was my device. Yeah. Another touch that I really loved with the movie, and it's something I can't really recall ever seeing before, is the way you show us characters in life happening outside of the point of view of that main character right so we get these little snippets sometimes where we follow the angry guy in from his truck as he then gets into a fight with blaze and then the the guy whose job it is to clean up the remnants of the the beer bottle from that fight and then we follow him outside a little bit and it did reinforce for me anyway the idea that everybody's the star of their own story right that's
0: i what i didn't want to do is make another movie that deifies the individual yeah that oh oh, isn't it sad Blaze wasn't discovered? You know what? Blaze lived his life, and there are Blazes around you all the time. That's what I wanted to do, is like, who, who's the waitress at the club where Blaze fully works? I bet she's a musician, too, or what does she think about this song? What does the busboy think about it? What is the other person on the bus mm-hmm. sitting about it? Hopefully what you take away from that
1: is not that Blaze is special, but that we are special. I I do really love that touch as I said and you mentioned Born to be Blue earlier one of my favorite films of that year actually your performance I think was my favorite of the year as Chet Baker and I do want to ask you about one scene in particular. You'll know which one here. My apologies for quoting myself. But on the show, when I talked about that scene in my list of the year's best, I said that it starts with those familiar notes to My Funny Valentine on his horn, then switches to vocals. He's there to prove he can play the trumpet the way he used to play. He mostly sings instead. And he's not a particularly good singer, but he commits to the performance. He connects with the music. He internalizes not just the words, but the soul of the song, and then expresses it in his own idiosyncratic way, which is what great artists do. And it's melancholy and haunting and gorgeous and weird and vulnerable. And I could go on about that performance in that uh, scene. Thanks. What I want to ask is how the performance scenes, that one in particular maybe, and that entire experience of playing Chet Baker did ultimately inform your making of this movie.
0: There was a review I read of, of Chet singing that gave me real inspiration, which was that it, it wasn't even somebody singing. It was the memory of someone having sung hmm. already. Hmm. No sooner had it come out of his mouth. And there was this detachment that he didn't sing well. You know, he didn't, like Nina Simone right. sings well. Yeah. Uh, Louis Armstrong sings well. He communicates, and he communicates something genuine, that there's a genuine loneliness there, and there's a genuine fragility yes. there. And he really liked to sing, but that he really liked to sing because he was so worried about his teeth that he wanted to give his... Horn playing a break, I found that so interesting. Yeah. It's kind of like Bob Fossey, as it was this amazing dancer. And then as you study him, you realize, oh, he had a lot of problems with his legs. He was pigeon toed. And mm-hmm. he developed, because he wasn't as good a dancer as he wanted, he developed this real in step move that people found really sexy and cool. But it came from trying to hide yeah. that he couldn't go out. Y- y- you know, And I, I find. It's this thing as a parent all the time. You're trying to say, don't be scared of what makes you unique. It's actually what makes you beautiful. And, and that's why when I was like, you know what? I wouldn't normally think I could play this jazz musician, but because his secret was actually an actor's secret, which is you have to actually just show him how scared you are.
1: Yeah. And then it can work. And, and that I thought I could do. Well, I use the word commits there and talking about commitment to a performance. Maybe what I appreciate most about you as an actor is your level of commitment. I was talking with our producer, Sam, about this, that we never doubt that you are 100% all the way in on whatever it is that you're engaged in, whether it's life or whether it's art. Do you think that commitment, the act of committing to something is a choice you make? Or is it an instinct? Is that just who you are? Some of us are predisposed to certain things.
0: Um, and some of us, our fears and our insecurities are encouraged by life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have people, I find confidence extremely fragile, you know? Yeah. And the difference between somebody who's good at something and somebody who's great at something, often is confidence. And in, in one in person, it can leave. We, we see it in sports all the time. The guy's on a hitting streak, you, you know, and he can't miss. Mm-hmm. And then that confidence is the talent, the body, the molecules, the parents, the practice. It's all the same. But where's that magic confidence? And mm-hmm. where does it come from? And so commitment, I think a lot of confidence can confidence can come in from two places one is experience and another is commitment there's a line actually in the movie blaze about confidence because it's it's a mystery to me how we when we're at our worst it's usually because we don't aren't confident mm-hmm. you know, when we when we lie to somebody when we're uh, hateful to somebody we care about or maybe somebody we just met even you know something is we're letting the worst parts of ourselves lead. And Ben Dickey, the lead actor, has this thing that he... You know, one of the things that gives you confidence is knowing that you're alive. Simply knowing that you actually have air in your lungs and that your heart is beating right now and that it actually won't forever. Yeah. It actually puts your finger on something very tangibly real. Like a sun... You know, one of the things that I think that people love about a sunrise or a sunset is it marks this day. Unlike this is really happening... Um, and from that, you realize that life is passing and that this, you can't waste these moments. And for some mysterious reason, confidence can be drawn yeah. there. Because you you can see the melodramas, the little things that shake your confidence aren't real. Oh, she won't like me. Maybe I'll fail. Um, failure feels so much better if you know you were committed. Yeah. It's just true. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's the sports fan in me always. I love... Uh, you don't ever have to feel bad about losing a game if you gave it your all, mm-hmm. if you leave it all in the field. Um, you know, it's an expression I heard uh, watching an athlete once. Somebody said, there's no quitting that guy. I thought, what a great expression. Um, permission to fail. You know, I remember one of my Richard Linklater directing me one time said, you know, what he didn't like about a you know, certain actor he was talking about is that something happened during the day and he gave himself permission to fail. That was the huh. reason why I wasn't going to do a good job today. And he said, you just got to never give yourself permission. You're going to fail. Mm-hmm. We're all going to fail all the time. That's part of living. But don't give yourself permission. You know, go yeah. down swinging. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I try to do that even if... It's one of the things that is lousy about the film business. If you're a painter, for example, and you're painting a picture, and you get about halfway through it, and you're going to go, this is not going to work. You stop, and you put it in the you know, garage or whatever, you paint over the canvas, you wait two years till you have the idea to fix it. When you're halfway through a movie, sometimes you know it's not going to work. <laughs> you know, you just know it, you and feel you it in connect. your mind. But you got to finish it because all these people are being paid and you're like, damn it, I know this isn't going to work. <laughs> and you, But you, you can't do You know, I actually heard yeah. Paul Schrader speak about this so beautifully. He, he, he really believes that a big part of cinema is casting, you know, and, and if you cast it wrong, you he, he, he figure it out about two weeks into the shoot, and it's just over. Huh. And um, when when you cast it right, you can't. You know, then everything starts working mm-hmm. all by
1: itself, and yeah. that's the way I, I've come to feel that way. Yeah. You mentioned Linklater, and I want to talk about him here. We have just a little bit of time left. I kind of hate this trend on social media of parents sharing funny or poignant things their precocious kids supposedly just said, but now I'm going to be guilty of it. Yeah. <laughs> I got a text from my daughter Sophie. Completely out of the blue, recently, and it said this: It is two weeks from my 14th birthday. This is exactly the age Juliet fell in love with Romeo. <laughs> now she was reading Shakespeare in school, but my first thought was, "Shoot me!" You know, I'm just I'm not prepared for any of this. But my second thought was, I think she's ready for Before Sunrise. Oh, she is. <laughs> And I'm actually I'm really I'm really now eager to watch that film with her. So I want you, Ethan Hawke, to guide what a, what me. Should, a, should we dive thing into that? You to say, yeah. Uh,
0: first of all. You know, everybody does their own thing, but there's this thing that goes around with men that they're supposed to be scared of their daughter's sexuality. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's like somehow they think it's a good quality. Uh, Oh, you know, I remember when Maya, my oldest, when she was turning 16, oh, you better keep those guys away. Keep a shotgun at the door or something. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to give Maya permission to be her own shotgun, Mm -hmm. you know? And if you act all scared of her sexuality, then how is she supposed to feel, You, you know? And there's a great movie that Chris Christopherson plays a dad and it's called a soldier's daughter never cries. It's written by James Jones and Chris plays this old war veteran and writer. And, and I saw it really affected me because Chris just, his character just loves his daughter and gives her permission to be a hundred percent human being, meaning Mm -hmm. you are a sexual person. Julia did fall in love with Romeo and you know what? It's beautiful. And is she prepared to fall in love? No. Were you? Mm. No. Nobody is. Right. Um, you're never going to do it all right, but you can give her confidence. Yeah. Confidence to know that she's in charge and she doesn't need to be scared of him. Didn't need to be, a, she doesn't need a dad with a shotgun behind her. She can handle herself and she can go have a good time. Yeah. And she can make mistakes and she can recover from them. You know, yeah. all of that's this, this idea of innocence and this idea that we're not allowed to make mistakes and that, you know, we are allowed to make mistakes, Mm and we're allowed to grow up, and if we don't, if we don't, then we're just going to live in a little tiny, Mm -hmm. tiny glass world. And I've given my daughter permission to make a big fool of herself if she wants, (laughs) yeah, um, and to break some hearts, and to get her heart broken. Um, And I think, I was really, I got to tell you, one of the best moments of my life was, Maya was about 18, so just a year or so ago, and a couple of her and her friends decided... One of her friends told her that Before Sunrise was a really good film. She's like, my dad's film? Huh? And they were like, yeah. And she watched it, and, I, and she loved it. And she uh, had all these interesting things to say about it. And I was so pleased to know that those... We had a goal when we were making that movie to have no pop culture references. We wanted it to be able to not be, is it 1970? Is it 2010? You know, we made it in whatever year it was, 94, 95 or whatever. But we wanted it to be able to float through time because the way you feel when you walk through an old European city, you almost feel like a ghost or because the past present future when when things are so old around you Mm -hmm. it feels a little different than it does here in america yeah so i say show your daughter before sunrise i hope she likes it and tell her she's right she (laughs) is the age um of juliet and things are happening and it's for real yeah we're
1: going to do that soon and to her credit when i made some non-evolved comment back to her she replied reminding me how young i was when i met her mother and how old were of, you uh, I was 16 wow so, so you go, put me man. in put me it's in my on. place <laughs> it's on <man. laughs> very quickly and you know tell
0: her to go see Romeo and Juliet too because she'll learn a lot from that for sure that, that play teaches you a lot
1: yeah okay we're gonna end with the uh, film spotting five here five rapid fire questions hit me last movie you saw in the theater other than your own I don't know what the last one
0: I saw was the one that jumps to my mind is I saw the 25th anniversary of Malcolm X in Brooklyn with a full house and It goes to show you how much you can't watch how important it is going to the movies because... I remember being told that that movie was too long or that I mean, when you see Denzel's performance yeah. in that movie with the music blaring and the crowd yeah, laughing I've never seen it with an
1: audience I can uh, imagine it's,
0: it's like it, it's better than a fireworks display you know hmm. I mean it's it's what cinema is supposed to be so that that floored me that was the most uh recent one I remember okay is there another one that Oh I have... saw Claire Denis recently in her her film with Julia Binoche, which was also Let the Sunshine in yeah yeah with this woman Julia Pernoch she's <laughs> The I mean, greatest, she, right? She
1: really is first ballot Hall of Famer, yeah. man. She just keeps doing it. Without a doubt. A movie then that you revisited recently, not on the big screen, just threw it in the the DVD player, if anyone uses DVD players anymore, the iPad. You know, when Sam Shepard died, I I had to watch Paris, Texas
0: again. Mm-hmm. And, God, you know, I I didn't realize how much that movie had. If you watch Blaze, which i editing it, You know, I watched it a lot. I didn't realize how much that movie was in my psyche. Really? And what a staggering
1: work of art that movie is. Yeah.
0: It's just such a beautiful movie. That's one I need to revisit very badly. It's really worth
1: it. An underrated movie, new or old. Maybe one that you just love more than anyone else you know. An
0: underrated movie. Uh, okay. Uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I, I showed that movie. Um, it's an 80s, you know, Sarah Jessica Parker, uh, who else is uh, Holly or Helen Hunt. Helen, Helen Hunt. Hunt. Yeah. And, and she's amazing in it. It's a totally corny, silly
1: movie. But you want to have fun with your girls? Watch, watch that movie. There you go. So let's see if you can pull another title here. Just a random movie you love. I was wondering why nobody talks about Buffalo 66 anymore. Yeah, we just brought it up on the last show we taped before this interview. We did. I I want to talk to you about this. We did our top five classic rock moments in movies. Obviously, Dazed and Confused was a big part of that show. But the use of a Yes song at the end of Buffalo 66 was an honorable mention for me. That's
0: a terrific, terrific movie. I really liked the film uh, Bellflower came out a few years ago. That was a really remarkable film. Um, I love... uh, you know, Schenectady, New York really holds a place in my mind.
1: Mine too. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, those are, you know, what's popping in my brain is is really strong films that that people haven't seen as yeah, much. Yeah, for sure. You know, another... Um, I, I, this is totally self-serving, but I don't mean it to be. I did this movie called Predestination that mm-hmm. a lot of people haven't seen, and inside of it, Sarah Snook gives a performance. Uh, she plays a, a transgender person inside a, a genre movie. And I mean, if it, if it were a little indie movie, people would talk about it like they would recognize what a great performance it is. But I think because it's in a genre movie, they just, it's, it gets performances often, great performances get lost yeah.
1: that way. And she's incredible in that okay. movie. No, great, great stuff. Last one, your favorite book about movies or movie making? Um, a Life by Kazan. Yeah.
0: That's the one. Linkletter says this, and I agree. He, th- he thinks it should be required reading that if you 're serious, you know if you have a kid, a son or daughter out there who's getting interested in making movies or acting in them, or you yourself are serious about it, you know Kazan had a big life, and he experienced a lot socio politically mm-hmm. um, he worked with you know the last great movement in acting Marlon Brando, james dean Strasbourg group theater he he really touched on all this, and he 's one of the very few who excelled at a high level in the theater Mm -hmm. and in movies. And when you listen to the way he talks about acting, you're like, oh, it's actually no surprise that he blew up James Dean, Mm Marlon Brando, Montgomery. I mean, like, he changed... I never had anybody, anybody in 30 years of acting talk to me about acting the way that Aliyah Kazan talked about acting in his book. And it makes you realize why, why all these British actors are so damn good. They treat their res- profession with a tremendous amount of respect. And we have this whole cult of celebrity around things where it, it, it just confuses things. Mm-hmm. And it, it really confuses young people,
1: yeah. I think. yeah. There's so much more we could get to. We did our top five Linklater scenes a while back, I think, when Everybody Wants Some oh, wow. came out. And I, just looking at that list again, realized that four of my five scenes had you in it. Oh, and maybe your... maybe another time we'll All be right. able to go through those. I'm, I'm going to have to do my, my favorite that I've ever been in yeah?
0: is talking julie to get off the train and before sunrise oh yeah you, you know t- telling her that she was going to be a time traveler and i was going to make her feel better about her present marriage
1: by revealing to her how what a loser i was yeah well that's a great scene that film is filled with them thank you so much for your time ethan best of luck with blaze really enjoyed it thank you
0: so listen here's the deal this is what we should do you should get off the train with me here in vienna and come check out the town what come on it'll be fun come on <laughs> What would we do? Um, I don't know. All I know is I have to catch an Austrian Airlines flight tomorrow morning at 9.30, and I don't really have enough money for a hotel, so I was just going to walk around, and it'd be a lot more fun if you came with me. And if I turn out to be some kind of psycho, you know, you just get on the next train.
1: Ethan Hawke's Blaze is out of theaters and unfortunately not available to rent or stream just yet, but do keep an eye out for it. Coming up, another great conversation I got to have in 2018. Comedian and first-time filmmaker Bo Burnham talks about his film, Eighth Grade. Stay with us. I'm going down to the Greyhound station Gonna get a ticket to ride Gonna find that
2: lady with two or three kids and sit down by her side
1: Ride till the sun comes up and down around me About two or three times Smoking cigarettes in the last seat Try to hide my sorrow from the people I meet And get along with it all Go down what people say y'all Sing a song with a friend Change the shape of the man And get back in the game Start playing again like to stay but i might have to go to start over again penthouse
0: you need to wait your turn
1: relax it's not a hold up just sign this one please how would i sign it i don't know slowly <sighs> what don't your arms work they don't you can move your mouth as can you i need assistance how much does it pay hell yeah man hell yeah Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart in the trailer for The Upside. It opens wide on January 11th, and we've got passes to see a free advanced screening of the film on January 9th. If you are in the area and would like to see that film for free before it comes out, you can enter to win at filmspotting.net slash events. Also on that events page, We have details about our live show. Again, a reminder, Friday, January 11th, is that event, 7.30 p.m. at the University of Chicago's Logan Center for the Arts. Join Josh and me and some of our favorite Chicago critics to talk about our favorite movie moments of the 2018 movie year. Opening scenes, funniest moment, moving moment, and we will get to our scene of the year and more, including announcing the winner of this year's Film Spotting Golden Brick Award. Again, more info at filmspotting.net slash event or WBEZ.org slash events. Let's get back into the show with my conversation with Bo Burnham. He's the director of Eighth Grade. He got his start as a teen YouTube star. He's now 27 and a successful stand-up comic. Eighth Grade, his first film as a writer-director, was one of the most talked-about films at last January's Sundance Film Festival, where it had its premiere. Eighth Grade tells the story of eighth-grader Kayla, a shy, awkward kid desperate for connection as she navigates the final week of middle school. She's played by newcomer Elsie Fisher, who is remarkable in the part. I spoke with Burnham last June when eighth grade played to a sold out house at Chicago's Music Box Theater as part of the Chicago Critics Film Festival. It was followed by a QA with Burnham, which gets referenced a couple times in the interview. Before getting to eighth grade, let's actually start with a clip from Burnham's 2016 stand-up special, Make Happy.
2: Anyone watch us celebrity lip syncing on the Tonight Show? You know It's the end of culture. Culture's over, everybody. We lost. This is entertainment. How is this entertainment? People we've seen too much of, mouthing along to songs we've heard too much of. And this is the bread and butter of American television. And it's always one of two things on celebrity lip syncing. It's either a male celebrity lip syncing to a woman's song, (laughs) but he's not. Or it's a rich, young, white actress, ironically, lip syncing to a hip hop song. (laughs) The police coming straight from the underground. Can you believe this song was once an honest articulation of class struggle? <laughs> F-
1: these people. I wanted to start by saying I really admire your work, even Appreciate though it. after watching Make Happy on Netflix, I feel really guilty every time I watch Emma Stone lip sync to all I do is win. (laughs) You ruined that for me. Yeah, well, I'm glad. (laughs) 88 million views on YouTube. I was like 172 of them. (laughs) Right. No more. It's not too bad. No,
2: No, it's okay. You know, lip syncing is fun, but it has its limits. (laughs)
1: It does indeed. But having watched Make Happy and your other special what uh, and seeing the productions they are in terms of the lighting and the music and uh, occasionally a visual joke that's just for the audience watching at home. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all that you would write and direct a movie. But was that? always a goal from the time you started posting videos on your own YouTube channel or did it just evolve?
2: No, not really. I mean, it wasn't a goal from the beginning. It was sort of something I discovered over the course of, of doing this other thing of up. of, uh, you know, I had done theater a lot of my life and, and then started doing stand up comedy and was trying to sort of Wrestle all of the things from theater that I loved into stand up. Um, but at a certain point, I was sort of going, you know, I'm not in love with the performing, but I am in love with writing the shows, staging the shows, shooting the shows, lighting the shows. Um, And I slowly realized, like, oh, I think directing and writing a movie would sort of wrangle all the things that I actually love about this Mm -hmm. into it without bringing all the anxiety of my face being the thing that delivers it, which is not
1: (laughs) my favorite part of it. So with that said, do you anticipate at any point writing and directing a movie that you star in?
2: I don't really, know. I mean, that's not my maybe. I mean, I I, I just – I didn't write a part for myself, so – and I I wouldn't have casted myself in any role in this movie. That's why it didn't happen. Um, If something comes along that I'm right for, maybe, but my my impulse is definitely not to sit down to write myself mm-hmm. something to be in.
1: Yeah, I've been late to the Bo Burnham phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I, I just <laughs> discovered you actually watching The Big Sick. Yeah,
2: yeah that was, that was very it. funny. That oh, was my awesome. entree,
1: which, if I'm remembering that movie correctly, and I was quite fond of that movie, that's that's not really you. <laughs> I mean, that uh, seems like a, a version of you. You're yeah. playing a character that isn't really the character I'm used to seeing now in your specials.
2: Yeah, totally. I, I don't know what it, I mean... I, I was just, you know, kind of vibing out whatever on set. And then I'd read like, oh, I really liked you. You played that jerk in the movie. I was like, oh, apparently I was a jerk. (laughs) Maybe I'm a jerk. Um, But yeah, no, no, it was great. I mean, I've been friends with Kumail for a a while and Emily...
1: who both wrote the mm-hmm. script and um, it was just a great. It was just a more traditional stand-up. Yeah, right, right kind yeah. of humor and and uh, and uh, maybe a little bit less introspective than you. Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, he discussion. was more
2: of a surface sort of dweller, I think,
1: <laughs> but very good as well. So if you you came to film, then it kind of was this evolution. What what films? What what filmmakers were influences for you?
2: Um, for this movie, you know, it's a it's a young uh, woman's story. Uh, um, so. You know, Marissa Silver has this wonderful film, Old Enough, and uh, Andrea Arnold's film and Julia De film last year. Raw mm-hmm. was pretty influential. Which and,
1: Andrea Arnold film? Um, Fish, Tank Fish Tank, probably.
2: Yeah. You know, mostly for this film, um, and you know, Casavetti's stuff. And I, I just liked, you know, like the first real movie I felt like I saw that it made me fall in love with movies was like One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Okay. And just I've always fell in love with performance and sort of chaotic, naturalistic exciting Mm -hmm. performances on screen. So um, that's what I'm sort of, that's what I'm influenced by. I'm influenced by the performances that directors
1: get out of actors, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just, you know, stylistically. One of the films you mentioned during the Q&A that followed the screening at the Chicago Critics Film Festival here was, you mentioned Trey Edward Schultz's film, That film is a family reunion movie that turns into an all-out horror film, right? And yours is a coming-of-age movie that doesn't, Turned into a horror movie, but certainly has its fair share of dread. Yeah, yeah, Uh, right. And and one of the connections I think for me is the way the audience watching both films perceives the world at all times from the perspective of that that main character, that main character, and sometimes their psyche is a little bit uh, fractured, a little intense, uh, a a little heightened. So, how important was it for you to present that world to us as viewers all the time through that? Yeah, I mean, that was the impulse
2: to want to make something very, very subjective. I mean, my initial impulse for the, how the film would feel would be just completely docu-style. Um, and then I realized that like a completely naturalistic approach to the filmmaking was actually less real than something slightly more stylized. Mm-hmm. That how, what she's feeling is a little more intense than just what it, what what would be shown if you filmed it naturally. So... Um, and, and and Kreish is a great example of doing that, a film that feels mm-hmm. very, very natural and real, but has a sort of heightened style that actually makes the emotions of the central character feel truer than mm-hmm. just coldly observing them. Um, and that was very important. I mean, the whole point was sort of, can we take a young kid's emotions as seriously as she does? Mm-hmm. Um, and can the audience feel them as seriously as she does? Not to make her experiences smaller by being nostalgic or looking back as adults, but really to, you know, sort of handcuff the audience to her and, and force them to
1: walk through her story moment to mm-hmm. moment. And, and the music really is a key part, the score of mm. that heightened style and, and that sense we have as viewers watching the movie. And that's maybe not a surprise for anyone who's familiar with your work, knowing your musical background and talent. But you talked about that in, at the Q&A, I assumed watching it that and even before it that you probably did the music that would have been one of the challenges that you wanted to take on with the movie but it didn't work out that way
2: no no i mean i wrote a bunch of temp music for it uh just because just as sort of a placeholder um but uh, again like i my my i didn't want to wear a bunch of hats just to wear the hats you know what i mean i didn't Mm -hmm. need to be the composer just because i could do it possibly um i felt like the temp score i wrote was tonally correct but not competently where i wanted it to be and um i stumbled on this composer anna meredith who's a scottish composer classically trained and has started sort of doing electronic music on the side and she just she writes the music i wish i could if i was a genius but mm-hmm. she's she's the genius <laughs> and and her music is just very it's hard to find one it's hard to find electronic music that's that's warm and i wanted to find electronic music because it's a digital story mm-hmm. but i but electronic music can often be kind of aggro and mechanical and she writes music that's very warm and accessible and yet she's taking big swings and big risks you know the sort of stuff she does with time signatures and, mm-hmm. and, and switches and it, she, she, her impulse is to be very big and theatrical and I wanted the score to be foreground music not background music I wanted it to activate the story and make the story more intense and mm-hmm. more alive
1: coming of age films typically can make very good use of popular music Mm -hmm. and it sounds like that was not something you you wanted to go down that path
2: we wanted the sounds of popular music or the sounds of her pop like we wanted to feel like okay what if you take the sort of sounds of the music she's listening to those sort of poppy sounds and
1: adapt them to the structure of Mm -hmm. a traditional film score back to the filmmaking a little bit Uh, did you then study film at all And, and who did you seek advice from Before you Um, appeared on set and started production.
2: You know, I had done some production here and there. I made a show for MTV for a little while. And then, um, but I had, I had about six or seven months when I knew this was greenlit before we actually started pre-production. So I kind of like read a book a week and watched a million (laughs) movies and just tried to like crash, give myself a sort of crash course film school as much as I could just to minimize the amount of lessons that I knew I would learn on set. Just, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I have people around me that are in the filmmaking world. My, my, Girlfriend of six years as a director. And I looked to mm-hmm. her for a lot of um, advice and inspiration. And um, yeah, it was. I knew it was going to be a learning experience. I was excited about that. And I just tried to have it be a substantial learning experience, but not such a substantial learning experience that all I came out of it with was lessons and not, mm-hmm. a, not anything I could show to anybody.
1: Right. I'm always curious with writers and directors about scenes maybe where you envision one way when you wrote it on the mm. page. And then when you were shooting it or in the editing room, it turned into something else, maybe something else entirely, or just took on different depths, or maybe it just became funnier. Whatever yeah. it was, was there an example
2: for yeah, you? Yeah, I'm sure there are a bunch of examples. I mean, one that might sound over specific, but it was very uh, significant in how it played out was she goes to the pool party and, and she sort of, the idea is that she you know, comes out of the bathroom in her bathing suit. She walks up to a glass door. Mm-hmm. Then we zoom out from her view of the glass door to the pool party. And then she we see the pool party. Then she walks out of the glass door into the pool party. And the house that we found that was totally right had the glass door on a balcony, mm-hmm. a, a, a story above the pool party. Right. And I I just always pictured in my mind that the glass door was on the same level as the pool party. I know that sounds very simple, but it it, it made...
1: Yeah, it, does. it just makes it such something. a
2: huge difference. She's she's now like above, looking yes. into this world. That's uh, and, and when she comes out in the pool party, there's like there's this like awful, weird like Cinderella type of <laughs> yes. blocking of going down into the depths of this thing. So right. there's a lot of those things when you actually find. You can have very overly specific ideas of, of how things are going to be blocked and shot. And, and often I found that, that the specific locations, if you could adapt to them, were, mm-hmm. were, were often way better than what you
1: had in your head. Yeah. You had a great line during the Q&A about your personal connection to the material. And I'm probably going to get it wrong here. So jump in if you I would probably like. got it wrong. <laughs> but you said something like you don't know, of course, what it's like to be a 13-year-old girl. You also don't know what it's like to be a 13-year-old growing up. Right now yeah. in this time, obviously, yeah. you could have set this movie back in the 90s mm-hmm. or the the time closer to when you grew up, but you would have lost the social media element, which is such a key part of the movie. Yeah. Obviously, you could have made Kayla, maybe Kyle, right? You could have right. gone down that path, <laughs> um, but you didn't. So yeah. so what gave you the confidence that you could make a movie about this 13 year old girl and that you could make it honest and authentic?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was really like I had no interest in, in telling my younger story. I, I had no interest in, in that period of t- I do have an interest, actually, in that period of time when I when I was um, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. That's a whole mm-hmm. separate story. I was 2003 mm-hmm. or something. It was a very strange thing. Um, that's a whole other can of worms. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't more the confidence like, oh, can I do this? It was really like I was drawn to it and I felt like I understood her and I felt like I had a connection with her and these kids of this time. I, and it felt like it was personal currently. I feel like I relate to her now as a mm-hmm. person now much more than I did as an eighth grader. So the, really the initial – like it wasn't building confidence. It was actually like feeling drawn to this person and feeling terrified like, oh, my God, because I, I have all the questions you had. Mm-hmm. Like am I the person to tell this story? What am I doing? You know. But uh, then I just made the decision that like this is speaking to me and meaning something to me, so I, I have to follow
1: that. Mm-hmm. And then was that feeling – validated when you're actually working with Elsie Fisher yes, on set? Yes, yes,
2: exactly. And like once I met her, I was like, oh, we are wired very similarly. Mm-hmm. We, we are very similar people. I understand you. You understand me. So th- that, the fear went away immediately when, when she was in front of me and it was act- an actual beating heart. At the Q&A,
1: I know you heard a lot of praise for her performance. I'm guessing that's pretty much across the board where you go yeah. with this movie because she really is remarkable. I have a hard time as a critic describing good acting. I think part of that is... <laughs> I'm not an actor. It's easier to describe bad acting. But it's easier to describe bad acting. Exactly. So I I want to try to get at that a little bit from your perspective because she's performing. Elsie is performing as Kayla. Kayla is always also performing to an extent like we all are every day on social media. So how did you get at those layers but still make sure that she was natural?
2: I mean, truly, it was really like she just had to have it. She just had to have those skills, kind of. And we met with so many actors, and she was able to do that. She was able to just... Sort of maintain the sort of chaos that all kids have. I mean, if when you talk to any thirteen-year-old, I have a thirteen-year-old daughter. You do eighth okay. Grade. Oh, great, she's finishing like, up eighth grade. <laughs> um, and and again, it's 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 funny. It's like maybe the one time where they aren't performing in in the movie is with their her dad is yeah. where she's actually comfortable to be mean, and and and, and the kind of mm-hmm. idea there is that like. Meanness from her is actually a form of love it's like you're the only person I'm not scared of so Mm -hmm. I will be mean to you I don't have the courage to be mean to anyone at school so please let me just yell at you (laughs) Um, but yeah it's like Elsie just had that ability to maintain all of the uh, a lot of kid actors when you give them a script you know they they take all of the things that make them interesting Mm -hmm. and chaotic and fun to watch and they squash them down into a very sort of simple line reading they sad they talk like that and when they're happy they talk like this you know and and Elsie was the one kid that could maintain what was her within a scene which is just I mean, I can't talk to it. It's it's as much yeah. a magic trick to me, having seen it okay. through the process as anybody.
1: I still watch it on screen and go, yeah, I, I have bet. no idea how she but did that. Those other performers are somehow externalizing it in a way that that feels false, and she was internalizing it, but, yeah, but still exactly. expressing it.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, she's just comfortable to be vulnerable in every moment. She's Or, or not that. She's comfortable to exist at the sort of horizon yeah. of her thought. Like, when I watch her, I go like, wow, it really looks like a kid trying to form thoughts, Mm -hmm. like a kid trying to say something, as opposed to, I think there's an impulse with actors to want to be in control. And I think great actors can let go of their control Mm -hmm. and can be free and vulnerable to the moment. I don't mean vulnerable as in like soft and weak. I mean vulnerable as in like, I don't know what's going to happen right now, and I'm vulnerable to whatever is going to arise in me at this moment. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to going into a scene with an intention and knowing what to do, that that stuff, right? It, it does not work on film. When you're when you're that close, it it, it you can see right through that the. <clears throat>
1: early dinner scene with father and daughter yeah uh, felt <laughs> very close to home yeah it's awesome. <laughs> very close to home trying to just get them to respond to you in any way with <laughs> with their phone out and those, yeah, those right. earbuds in it uh, it can be very difficult have you as you've been touring with the film or been going to some festivals have you been watching it with audiences because of the music box crowd the line was around the block it was it was packed and uh, I'm watching with young women all around me yeah. who I honestly felt like not that there weren't things that felt true to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But also I was watching women who it felt like to me, young women in their twenties, they were reliving <laughs> in yeah. some ways, maybe for better or worse, their, yeah. their adolescence. And uh, i I just wonder what, what that's like for you uh, when you're, you're taking that in as the person who wrote it and made the film, but also maybe expound a little bit on something you said that I thought was really interesting during the Q and a about, it being important with all the work you do mm. on on YouTube or things you do on streaming platforms whatever to make this story, to put this story and put Kayla, the character, on the big screen for yeah. people. Yeah,
2: well, I, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I do watch it. I'm mostly like popping in and out, checking the sound levels. Like I tweaked the level <laughs> nine times over really? the course of the, yeah. Um, but it's also, it, you know, I, I traveled around a lot doing shows and theaters and I could never fully enjoy the experience because I had to do the show. Like I would not what's so wonderful about the, showing the movie is I don't have to get up and perform the movie. I right. can just watch it and, and enjoy it with other people. <laughs> yeah. And especially in these big sort of packed, raucous screenings, it's it's very fun to be with everybody mm-hmm. uh, and watch them react. Um, And in terms of, yeah, I mean, it, it is a type of movie that on paper, you know, people might think should be a streaming movie or a small movie or a TV show or whatever. Um, But to me, there is a, a significance of when you see a, image or a story on a big screen that is bigger than you, which mm-hmm. is the opposite of your phone, which is your phone is a tiny little screen that you domineer over. right? And it makes, it's, it's, I think it has to do with how we see each other online is literally the physical size of the screen. All of our, we present each other to each other on these tiny devices. And of course, our lives look so stupid and in, inconsequential <laughs> on this little yeah. thing. Um, so part of it was, you know, this small, in theory, quote unquote, small story of this Young girl whose problems, you know, next to the problems of the culture or the nation, seem very small, mm-hmm. should not. In this moment, will not. We are going to sit, and she is going to be, you know, forty feet tall in front of us, and you're going to be humbled before the image of of this girl. Um, that, that that's really important to me, and also just the as our attention is more and more fractured, it feels like the the required attention of a theater of being in a theater has just gotten more and more valuable. You know, yeah. the, the idea of this is the one place where we are forced to turn off our phones and pay attention to something yeah. for an hour and a half. Yeah. And, um, that's important to me. And I, I, I just, I just thought we can't take human stories off the big screen. It can't just be explosions and, you right. know, car chases. we also have to, there's a significance to blowing up the small
1: and, and, sitting before it mm-hmm. you know uh so yeah. yeah well it it resonated with me because certainly I, I don't even know the running time of the film it's 90 yeah. 180 okay. min- no, no yeah, 93 exactly. 93 minutes yeah <laughs> i felt every minute of that yeah, three yeah, hours yeah. no uh but that was the only 90 minutes or whatever all day yesterday that i I didn't look at my phone. At least, yeah, that was it. I mean, yeah. it is a—it's—it's it's a, a reprieve. Instead, you looked <laughs> at someone else. <in> some <laughs> look at their phone. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's true. You mentioned the word control earlier when you were talking about uh, actors, maybe sometimes trying to exert control over their yeah. performance a little bit. I want to try to get at that a little bit. So, bear with me here, but it's hard not to watch your work and not think about irony, of course. And yeah. you've even done a song uh, mm-hmm. uh, called "Ironic," um, but it's—it seems to me anyway, still the dominant mode of discourse these days. Mm. And there are, there are reasons for that. And maybe there are some downsides to it being that S- sometimes, yeah, yeah, you never quite know where you stand with anything or what you should be grasping onto. What's serious? What's a joke? Of course. Should I be offended by that? Should I not be? Should I be moved by that? Mm. It's draining, right? Mm. And oh, it's, yeah. it's really it's messy. Empty. Yeah. And I was thinking at least in performance when you're on stage you get to control that conversation mm. in the moment, right? And, and I think about, I think it's make happy where the crowd starts to participate a little bit and you're like, you know, this isn't a participation thing. This is my show. Uh, but in real life, and certainly this case with Elsie, you don't get to control. Yes. <laughs> you don't get to control the right. audience. You don't get to control the conversation. You have to interact. Uh, and and that's, that makes it even more draining. So I want you to speak to that maybe if you can, but also is that one of the, the things that makes performing fun uh, if that's the word that mm. that it's it's your ability it's your chance to exert that control
2: yeah I mean well that, that that's interesting um, a lot to sort of go after there uh, well I will say first the performance of a you know one-man comedy show on stage and a mm-hmm. performance of a character in a narrative feature are almost incomparable there's like they're very very different types of performance um, but at least to the irony issue, like, that was sort of my way of getting at things emotionally and culturally for a long time was I sort of had, because I had to do comedy, I had to make everybody laugh every 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of impulse was, okay, I'll I'll talk about these issues ironically and satirically. Um, and I just sort of found over the course of 10 years that, like, attacking the current moment ironically and satirically is pretty empty and doesn't really work for me, and doesn't really get us anywhere, or didn't get me anywhere. Mm-hmm. How do you satirize the internet? How do you satirize? I mean, oh, whatever. Like Trump, mm-hmm. satirizing Trump is such a joke <laughs> yeah, to me. You know exactly. what I mean? Like, th- I, like I don't want to specifically bash any shows, but but why not? Yeah, like SNL. Th- no, 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 no. But like the like the there's like a Trump cartoon. Oh. I've never seen it, mm-hmm. but like there's a Trump cartoon. What are you talking about? Right. You cart You made a cartoon <laughs> of a cartoon. Right. Like what? Uh, yeah. It's the same thing where it's like. How do you do how how do you make an ironic thing about yeah. the internet when you watch when the most ironic things you see are old spice commercials and geico commercials are making and deadpool is mm-hmm. making fun of you know so like for me I, I just with this wanted to drop all of that and and try to be honest and genuine about the cuz the internet is self-satirizing it's self-ironic and uh or self-ironizing mm-hmm. whatever the <laughs> verb is um So yeah, that, that, that was the journey to this movie was, and it probably does have, it probably is like you're saying, has something to do with control, Mm -hmm. letting go of control over this or not. I really wanted to make a non-authoritative statement on the internet rather than going, all right, this is, I'm going to tear apart the culture and show you what's wrong with it. Go, if I'm honest with myself, like the current moment just makes me feel weird in my tummy and I want to express that feeling. Um, and be descriptive of the moment rather than pedagogical mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, that was a great question. So I
1: <laughs> no, gave an awful it's answer. It's kind of a long-winded one, but you did, you did a wonderful job with it. So I, I want to get to two more real quick here because, kind of jumping off that that answer there even doing this show which is a a film criticism and and we're having fun we're talking about movies for two hours it's personal enough and there's enough of an element of performance to it of course i'm on the radio right it's it's a it still is a version it's the version of me that i like to think is articulate and actually Mm. knows what he's Mm. talking about um which isn't uh the case every day but when it's all over i'm usually thinking about all the things i did wrong of all the things I got wrong, the things I should have said, the things I shouldn't have said. I rarely listen to any of these shows, even as we've done almost 700 of them, because all I think about are the inadequacies of it. And there's another one to do. Right. So I'm curious what this is leading to besides me just on the couch is when you produce a special or a video or a movie, what's the fear for you? Like what what has to go wrong or feel off for you for it to not be successful for you? Oh. Well, wow, I didn't know that
2: that's where that was going. That's where it's going. That's, I mean, well, I will say like that question and mode of thinking is all I want to inspire in <laughs> from the movie. Truly. Yeah, like yeah. I hope someone would see this movie and think of that. I'm saying like Mm -hmm. people could look at you and go, you are ostensibly nothing like the struggle of an eighth grade Mm -hmm. girl, but the way you articulated your, but the way you articulated your struggle with your own Mm -hmm. profession is exactly the struggle she has with her own sense of expressing herself. And I think is shared by a lot of people. Yeah. And I want people to be, if you are honest with yourself, the way you sort of reconcile with your own expression and articulation is the same as Mm -hmm. what she is. It's all the same thing. Um, In terms of what could go wrong, anything, all the time, everything. Yeah. (laughs) One person kind of not liking it. I mean, if I'm being completely honest with myself, like, so that's a conversation i don't even try to engage okay it's it's, it's a part of me that i realize like is just so flawed and like i shouldn't even try to engage with myself on those terms Mm -hmm. because that part of myself is the part of myself that probably was implanted in me when my sister carried me on her shoulder and said i'm the coolest guy that's ever lived and i've just been for you know 24 years trying to prove to everybody that i'm what my sister thought i was yeah um so yeah i mean that is that's the sort of internal struggle that i'm I, hopefully, yes. That that's the commonality I found with her, to to sure. say that the way you feel around your friends is the way I feel around my friends. The right. way you feel in your head is the way I feel in my head. Um, and I look to you and everyone else for that answer sure. as much as way quicker than wanting to give it. I have yeah. no answer
1: to that. Okay, fair enough. I'm going to close with uh, the film Spotting 5, Rapid Fire here. The last movie other than your own you saw in the theater. I saw Avengers. Okay
2: and i thought it was incredibly not a mess <laughs> i was that's, i was blown perfect. away that it was not a mess that i was very, very impressed was i spent 35 <laughs> minutes on <laughs> that kind of a long one, but you did a wonderful done, job it's with it was not a mess
1: <laughs> what's a movie you revisited recently
2: um, billy madison Really? Yeah. Which I will say, it has all of the socially problematic things that all of our comedies from the 90s had. Yeah, yeah. Like, incredibly. But there's something... I didn't realize how much of my movie has... Like, (laughs) Mrs. Lippy, the first grade teacher, is as good a portrayal of a first grade teacher ever. The principal spitting water from Uh between his mouth in slow motion. I realized I ripped that off in my movie. (laughs) <laughs> Again, there's like rampant homophobia in basically everything. Sure, I mean, you, you rewatch like Friends in your movie too, and it's like, no. yeah, oh, well, well, we'll, we'll find that. We'll find what's wrong with my no. movie in ten years. But um, yeah, Billy
1: Madison. Yeah, okay. What's an underrated movie? Something that you love that nobody else seems to enjoy as much? Um, underrated movie.
2: I will say a really great movie on Netflix is Win It All with Yeah Jake Johnson. Mm-hmm. It's a yeah, Swanberg, uh, Swanberg movie. Yeah. Jake Johnson's performance in that movie, I think, is stunning. I'm a fan of his. And yeah. Trulio is stunning mm-hmm. in that movie, and it hasn't been talked about. And I think that movie is un. I think I think Jake Johnson is like that is a, yeah, a perfect perfect heartbreaking incredible performance.
1: Hmm. That movie. What about just any random movie you love? What What first pops into your head?
2: Um, MacGruber. <laughs> Yeah, McGruber is like best <laughs> comedy the last decade, I think.
1: <laughs> you said as you were preparing last question here for your movie, you you watched a bunch of stuff, you read a bunch of stuff. So what's your favorite book about the movies or movie making?
2: About the movies or move, movie making.
1: Probably, you know, Sidney Lumet's
2: one's good. Yeah, making movies. Um I don't know. I don't I, it was like I was reading like, you know, like the Cinematographer's Manual. Uh-huh. I mean, I was reading like real cold stuff cuz sure. I felt like I like Lacked cold knowledge, Mm -hmm. Um, but I just reread Lincoln and the Bardo, which is my movie making. No, I've read that like three or four times now. In a way, like everyone needs
1: to. It's cinematic, and it is. It is is, right. So it is. Yeah, Um, and that that's just that's what I talk about all the time. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. Best of luck with the movie. Appreciate. Thank you. Mm
2: -hmm. just grab my
1: phone. How to charge it? Yeah, I mean sometimes I charge it too, but my my phone, I. Just because things are happening right now, doesn't mean they're always gonna happen. What was in there? Just started my hopes and dreams. Right. I was a complete mess when I was your age. Really? Eighth grade is the worst. You never know what's next. And that's what makes things exciting and scary and fun. When did you get Snapchat? What grade? Fifth
0: grade. Fifth grade? Great. What? Yo, here? <laughs> <laughs>
1: My thanks again to Bo Burnham. Eighth Grade is currently available to rent or stream on most platforms. And you heard him respond to the Film Spotting 5, that rapid-fire Q&A we end most interviews with. Links to more Film Spotting 5s and interviews can be found in our archive at filmspotting.net. Just click on Interviews right there at the top of the page or click on lists, and that is our show. Next week, if you are in the Chicago area, a final reminder, come join us live for our 2018 Rap party. It's January 11th at 7.30 p.m. at the Logan Center for the Arts. You can get tickets at filmspotting.net slash events or wbez.org slash events. Filmspotting is produced by Golden Joe so and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Our thanks also to Candice Griffiths and the listeners of the film spotting advisory board and special thanks to everyone at wbez chicago more info is available at wbez.org for film spotting i'm adam kempenar thanks for listening this conversation can serve no purpose anymore goodbye Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's filmspottingfamily.com.